It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month, like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month, like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Hello and welcome to What Goes Up. My name is Mike Regan. I'm a senior editor at Bloomberg. And I'm Valdana Hayek, a cross-asset reporter with Bloomberg. And this week on the show, well, stocks, bonds, even crypto, they're all tanking this year. (laughs) Is it time to buy or is it time to stuff your money under the mattress? We'll get into it with the chief investment officer of a registered investment advisory. But Vildana, first, I, I need to thank you. I know I was uh, off on vacation last week and, and you filled in uh, on the podcast uh, without me admirably. I, I will admit I haven't yet listened to it. You probably shouldn't. We made a lot of fun of you. 
I, f- I figured that you were you burned me a few yeah, times, and 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 I will say during vacation I I got a terrible sunburn, so I can only handle so much burn no at one burns. time. I'm very very ashamed of myself for that burn. Uh, Romain Bostic filled in, and I told him that if just if you just happened to be stuck in California for some reason or you couldn't get a return ticket, I told him he was welcome to fill in for the rest of eternity for you. Oh, okay. Well, yeah. good. So you've already re- lined up uh, exactly. my replacement. Yeah, for exactly. Me. Okay. Yeah, but no more right. burns. I promise. I'll, I'll no keep more the burns. burns to a minimum because we did miss you. <laughs> and I will say, I'm I'm very ashamed of getting sunburn. I've I've dealt with melanoma myself. A reminder to everyone: this is a time of year where we all get burned. In my case, I I blame the um delicious cocktails that they serve at the hotel. Del Coronado, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, a lemon vodka concoction that had me let my guard down. So, yeah. Um, I, I recommend everyone reapply. I think you maybe after the second cocktail, every two cocktails. I don't know yes. the ratio. Oh, the reapply good. to cocktail ratio is uh, is is up to the individual. But a reminder to uh, t- to wear that sunblock at this time of year. I cannot protect myself from Vildana and Romaine's burns, unfortunately. <laughs> but um, uh, hopefully, you did not tell this week's guests to burn me as, as much as you did Romaine. I did actually. I did. I told her, oh, you know, it's a fun podcast. We can have as much fun as she wants. But okay. <laughs> speaking of the guests, I do want to bring in Ethan Devitt. She's the chief investment officer at Moneta. I want to welcome you to our show. Maybe just to start out, you can tell us a little bit about Moneta, what's, what the firm does, where you guys are based and, and what you've been up to recently. Great. Well, thank you. We are fee-only financial advisors. We're an RIA. We are one of the top 10 independent RIAs in the US. Our headquarters are in St. Louis and we have $32 billion in assets under management. And although our headquarters are in St. Louis, we have a national footprint and I myself am based in the Chicago office. Oh, great. Well, well, Ify, I was actually editing a column this morning that happened to have your name in it. So I, I figured that's a good segue. Uh, so one topic I wanted to ask you about, which is the nature of, of defensive stocks. And, um, you know, I'll, I'll sort of recap the column for listeners who uh, aren't privileged to read taking stock on the Bloomberg terminal, which you really should be doing, by the way. But if you're not, you know, I think it's a very sort of headache inducing time to think about how do you play defense in the stock market? Um, you know. Traditionally, you would you would go to something like consumer staples, utilities, high dividend payers with stable earnings streams. Um, the pandemic obviously turned that on its head. Uh, the way to play defense in that environment was to buy all the internet, um, uh, e-commerce, you know, streaming, social media, all the stocks that reflected what people were doing while they were stuck inside. Which is, you know, traditionally had been kind of the opposite of defensive stocks; those high growth tech stocks. Now, as crazy as it sounds, you know, you look at the leaders of the market this year, energy up a million percent, beating basically everything. People playing defense against this <laughs> inflationary oil shock environment by, by buying energy stocks. I'm wondering how you unpack it all. What what is defensive mean to you right now in the stock market, um, given the risks are kind of across the spectrum? You know, some people are worried about a, a looming recession next year everyone else is worried about inflation and and an erosion of purchasing power higher interest rates what what does it mean to be defensive is there a way to to sort of still allocate the stocks and be defensive in this environment it's an excellent question i mean the, ultimately the way to be defensive at a portfolio level is to have a well diversified portfolio and by that i mean across all asset classes so including bonds including alternatives 
including cash flow generators, including real assets. And that is our best way of assuring an all-weather portfolio. When it comes to stocks, defensive stocks are perhaps a bit of a misnomer because ultimately we are in equities, which are a higher risk reward asset class. They will be marked to market. They will experience volatility. We can see equities with a high correlation to each other, especially when there's a sell-off event. But that said, there are still sectors that might be considered value stocks, which as opposed to growth stocks have been quite out of favor as a whole for the last number of years. And there have been pockets of times when investors have, have cycled into value in that great kind of growth value rotation that we might see. But those rotation periods have actually been quite short. So I think we shouldn't be under the illusion that these defensive stocks are essentially somewhere to hide if there is a dramatic equity market correction. But they should be somewhere where investors may go in a flight to safety. The additional complexity, though, right now around these so-called defensive stocks, and you listed high dividend payers in that, is that traditionally when interest rates rise, these are seen as um, perhaps bond proxies or had been seen as bond proxies. And then funds flow out of these defensive stocks when interest rates rise because bonds become relatively more attractive. So they tend to see funds flowing out when interest rates rise. So they're not actually that defensive if we see a rising rate environment. So it's all relative. Are they more defensive than a high growth portfolio? Absolutely. Are they going to protect your capital in an equity market downturn? Not necessarily. Yeah. It's just such a u- unique environment because usually when you're seeing yields rising, it's because growth is picking up. Uh, you know, it's it's a different uh, point in the cycle. It, we just have kind of this unique sort of upside down cycle now, where uh, you know y- you have decelerating growth and rising yields. Um, so, uh, how do you sort of play that? Uh, you know, given especially the last couple of weeks, we have seen yields sort of come down a little bit um, off their highs oil come come off of its highs. I mean, is the worst of that inflation shock over, do you think? And, and, and you know, are those defensive plays a little bit more defensive now in that case? Well, just as we can adjust to, to anything, uh, any new normal somehow quickly becomes the norm. We saw that with COVID restrictions, uh, where how mask wearing became the norm, how restrictions became the norm. I think when it comes to inflation numbers, something that was perhaps eye-popping at a 40-year high starts to become normal very quickly. I would be surprised if we were to see high single-digit inflation persist, maybe for a few more months, maybe through the middle of the year. But ultimately, we have to remember the base effect in some of those numbers and some of the contribution of the shock rises in energy and some other components in there that perhaps were not likely to be sustained. Food prices would be an example. So the quick key question around all of these inflation numbers is stickiness. But I've just written a piece called Headwinds and Cross Currents, because as you mentioned, there is an abundance of risk right now in markets, um, and they're all interrelated. But equally, they're all, any one of them could potentially grow to exponentially to become a serious problem. Those are the problems you noted around inflation, around interest rate rising. And you mentioned upside down. I think that's a great analogy, because there are a lot of things that just don't make sense today. Typically, we speak about stagflation. That maybe when we have a rising inflationary environment, it's accompanied by high unemployment. And that then is that kind of perfect storm that leads to the recession. We don't have a high unemployment environment today. We have an actually very robust labor market. And in fact, we have low unemployment numbers, which are back to pre-pandemic levels. So that doesn't look like a recipe for recession. Equally, when we have a high inflation environment, we often have a a weaker dollar. And we have the opposite now. We have a dollar at two-year highs. So what's that telling us? 
perhaps that yes, the dollar should be under pressure because of the um, of an inflationary environment. But our central bank is taking measures that other central banks are not. And perhaps it's um, it, it, it's it's only looking strong because every other currency worldwide is looking quite weak. So we have a lot of um, juxtapositions of interesting factoids right now. And it is challenging for markets to make sense of it. I agree with that. So can you actually talk a little bit more about some of those? I think you call them currents. There's all these cross currents that are that are going on right now, all these different factors that are weighing on investors. So what what's top of mind for you? Well, I'm going to start with the two eyes, inflation and interest rates. So you mentioned inf- inflation being at a 40 year high. So it's true that most traders and markets today have never seen inflation at these levels. Most people don't have careers that are, are greater than 40 years. So this is uncharted territory for most market participants today. There is no playbook for this. The last one, as I mentioned, was in the 80s when we had a very different environment. We had certainly a hawkish Fed then. And when we look to the Fed's potential playbook, we do look to what they did the last time there was inflation in high single, in high, in, in high single digits and in, into, low, into low double digits. So as a result, that is certainly something we have to contend with. The key question is, is it sticky? Is it likely to persist? Um, and are we likely to have a situation where um, the consumer comes under pressure and where companies lose their pricing power and start to see that hit their margins? So really, there is a lot of unknown that's unknown currently about how the inflation picture is likely to pan out. But right now, because the consumer still has quite a bit of pent up demand, quite a bit of savings, and perhaps is, is still feeling this um, need to spend on services, we're not seeing it really pinch yet. The other major eye is, of course, interest rates. We're in a tightening cycle. We don't know how aggressive it's likely to be. I would argue that already quite a few 50 basis point rate rises are priced in for the rest of this year, perhaps three 50 basis point rises or more, or even five. So that is looking like markets already have kind of absorbed that, have, have factored that in. And for that reason, we can expect that we don't expect there to be really any interest rate shocks if that is, in fact, the interest rate trajectory. But again, we don't know how markets are likely to react to that. We, we see that even in the, in the last few weeks, there's been quite a lot of more volatility as the Fed has accentuated its stance on its, um, its the, 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 the language that it's using around the imperative of, um, of, of being assertive around inflation. We've lost the kind of the looser language of earlier on. So how do the reason I think there's uncertainty around this is how is this likely to play out in terms of a portfolio? Is this likely to cause bonds to, to lose? And we've had a shocking qu- first quarter for fixed income in terms of it, you know, it's, a, it's absolute return. So is this likely to be a poor environment for bonds? We've mentioned equity market volatility. Is it likely to lead to more equity market volatility? So the, the two eyes of inflation and interest rates are obviously top of mind. And we can't not mention the geopolitical surprise, the potential for ongoing surprise there. It seemed that markets were completely agnostic, it seemed, as to the impact of geopolitical risk for the last 18 months, until the first quarter of this year, until Russia invaded Ukraine and markets reacted quite suddenly and aggressively to this upending of global order, the so-called potential end to globalization. I mean, there was a lot of um, of uh, hyperbole in, uh, being used in terms of what this geopolitical event actually meant for the long term. But I think for the first time, investors are really starting to now focus on geopolitical risk. And that is, again, another potential surprise in markets. So all of that, and then add to that the backdrop of still ongoing COVID tensions and caution, companies emerging from that, Uh, house prices that are up 20% last year, 
rising mortgage rates that are themselves reaching um, multi-year highs. And, and there's a, just this kind of a, a concoction of risks that um, any, any one of them, as I mentioned, could rise to the top and be devastating. And so markets are really in a juggling act right now as to which to, to give emphasis to. You know, you brought up that notion of the consumer um, and uh, obviously consumer savings accounts uh, and that just the ho- normal household balance sheets just in the aggregate got very, very strong during the pandemic. You know, uh, whether it be uh, people collecting some some government stimulus money or, or just not being able to spend money elsewhere. Um so I, th- I, th- I wonder, you know, in large part, the question is, well, how how long does that buy the consumer in sort of a, an accelerating inflation environment? And some pretty interesting tidbits from some of the earnings reports we saw uh, this week. Uh, one thing I noticed, the visa, the spending on the visa network was like off the charts. People are are still spending like crazy. And it gets to your notion of pricing power. You know, Ch- Chipotle uh, raised prices uh, during the quarter and it didn't hurt them at all. Um, they had a, a very good quarter. So are there any sort of sectors you're looking at that are more uh, vulnerable to a pricing power problem? You know, um, you know, Ch- Chipotle almost strikes me as the type of place where you would cut back if, if you were worried about spending um, you know, and, and you'd be going to the supermarket more, going to, to McDonald's more, you know, a lower priced option. Are, are there any pockets of the sort of the consumer economy that you think are, are less vulnerable to um, uh, rising prices and, and others where that, that don't quite have as, as much pricing power and, and their margins might get squeezed? It's an interesting question because I think we can look at normal circumstances, what inflation would mean for different sectors, and then look at the current backdrop whereby the level of assets in money market funds reached a peak um, right after the pandemic due to stimulus payments and other the CARES Act, et cetera, and the fact that consumers couldn't spend their money and the, the, the enhanced unemployment benefit and just the fact that there was nothing to spend money on, really. They couldn't use services. They did consume goods in a very robust way. So because of all of that, there is this kind of pent-up purchasing power, I should say, or at least a dry powder. It's it's getting less by the day because obviously inflation erodes cash. So it will erode that actual purchasing power. So I think that's where the interesting dilemma is. Normally, I would say it would be things like discretionary expenditure, expenditure on, say, hospitality or travel. That would be where I'd see normally um, the consumer to be more vulnerable. And ironically, Chipotle is probably in that kind of price point of restaurants that sort of this fast food or enhanced fast food segment where actually that's where people tend to sort of downgrade to or, as opposed to eating in more fine dining true. establishments. So probably is still in, in that category that is likely to be quite robust and supported. But as far as if we saw United Airlines come out um, recently to say that they actually expected demand to be buoyant um, and we've seen fuel prices pass through into higher airline ticket prices. But notwithstanding, there is that pent up demand to take that, that vacation, take that overseas trip. And I don't see that subsiding. So as I said, it may be that that's artificially prolonging the strength of the consumer, these savings, plus the sense of the fear of missing out, of having missed out on um, on perhaps the, the normal spending pattern for two years. So for that reason, it's very hard to say at this point where we can see clearly are things like Netflix, things like some of that maybe Peloton, you know, areas that they would have spent money on um, during the pandemic, which now are no longer um, adequate substitutes for the, the real thing or, or for going out and spending on cinemas or, or you know taking that bike trip 
So I see that there, um, those are areas perhaps that were perhaps overbought during the pandemic. Um, so it's, it's, a, it's an interesting dilemma, really, as to what, how this purchasing power uh, effect is likely to, to pan out. I'm really glad you brought that up because I was just about to ask you about that, which is this idea that maybe some of the earnings reports so far are giving us a hint that there is consumer pushback for rising prices. So you mentioned Netflix. That's one good example. Then also we have Whirlpool mentioning it uh, and a bunch of the mattress companies. I think uh, Sleep Number was one of them. Temper Sealy had said that the just demand is falling off in response to higher prices, but not just on the good side. I I believe JetBlue also had mentioned something about rising prices and consumer pushback. So are you paying attention to some of those things and seeing it crop up a bit more? Yeah, that's a really interesting point. We see the concept of demand destruction uh, has been used for years in the commodity segment. So the idea that the oil price can't rise to the moon because at some point there will be less driving, less use of fuel, a conversion to other forms of energy, and that there is a point at which you know, there simply isn't, it's not going to go on forever. Uh, unlimited demand at unlimited price. So that's what pre- presents a natural ceiling. And I suggest that that's what, what other companies are also seeing is demand destruction at certain levels, that if something is ultimately a discretionary expenditure, there will be, uh, there will be a, a desire to shift to find substitutes and, and to not, not tolerate that price. So that probably actually could be a natural correction on inflation. It's not likely to rise forever. So let's see how that works out. But I think it's an excellent point. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers, they're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. 
Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. You know, Ify, it's funny. A lot in the financial world, if you want to have a, a quick meeting with someone in the US and New York, it's it's usually a coffee meeting. But you and your your charming Irish ways, you have tea meetings, I've noticed. Uh, CIOTs uh, that you uh, videotape and, and put on the website as a podcast. And really interesting one recently with Kathy Wood of ARK Investments. Um, and it's just been such uh, an amazing story um, with her her ETFs uh, and and really the you know those sectors of the stock market that she she favors the real sort of high future growth innovative disruptive type of companies uh, that the Teslas of the world and and whatnot. I'm curious, you know, what you took away from that conversation with her as far as. Um, is that strategy sort of in peril for I don't know the next couple of years, or or what do you think needs to be in place in sort of the macro environment, maybe to to bring that type of uh, outperformance back that she saw that and that sort of risk taking in the market, uh, you know, on an even broader scale uh, that that willingness to really um, invest in a company with uh, a future that might not, you know reach fruition for five or 10 years, that, that sort of thing. Is that, is that sort of risk-taking just really gone for good now, or, or is there something that will bring it back? What I think we're seeing is just a wave of critical thinking. And that was really where I focused my discussion in the interview with Kathy Wood, was I wanted to really challenge some of the growth assumptions that were built into some of the modeling they do on segments such as driverless cars or artificial intelligence, or um, perhaps the adoption of digital wallets or um, the price of Bitcoin. I asked her about her modeling and where the probabilities were in there and where the potential was inflection points were in order for this modeling to, to make sense or, or to not. I also asked her about in the past how their modeling had worked out and whether there had been instances where they had been wildly over-optimistic, because that often would be the um, the the uh, the assessment the exactly ar around yeah. some of these models is that they are they're overly optimistic, and I don't think that our fascination and our obsession with innovation is likely to go away anytime soon. What we have probably introduced is a dose of realism and the irrational exuberance that Alan Greenspan referred to back in 08, There was perhaps a, a shade of that around some of these uh, projections. If you think about it, it, probably not five years ago we all thought that today, 2022, we'd be driving around and we would have driverless cars. 
that's not a reality today. Sometimes tech is inherently very difficult to model. Um, we are grappling with modeling adoption technology. We're grappling with modeling the impact of climate change. So many of these models have so many different inputs that are all often interrelated that any one, um, there's going to be a huge element of um, a funnel of possibilities and funnel of doubt with any of that modeling. So what we've seen is a dose of realism around some of the projections. It probably is not a coincidence that that has come at the same time as we've seen just the, some of the sheen come off some of the tech stocks that perhaps are not great innovators. But for example, even look at Netflix or look at Meta. Um, they're, perhaps they're not innovators, but they've, they've seen the sheen come off them. So it probably is a sectoral, just a general um, falling out of favor right now that we're seeing. But as far as innovation, I am watching that very carefully. And if we were to look at the robust demand for, say, venture capital, on the, which is just the private market's way of playing innovation, that has not subsided. And if anything, we are seeing massive institutional capital shift into venture capital. We've seen the endowments do it for years. Now the pension funds are following suit. Family offices are large participants in that. Venture capital is just innovation in public markets by another name. So that doesn't seem to have slowed down. So there will be a fascination with the next new idea. And I suppose that the test will be um, at what stage is our markets prepared to fund that? And at what stage are they going to want to see the proof statement and the revenues follow? Forget about driverless cars. I thought we would have flying cars by <laughs> now. You know, the, the the Jetsons. We do have the video chat, though, that they had in the Jetsons. I never thought we'd see that in our lifetime. Uh -huh. I actually thought the flying cars were more, more likely before that. But here we are talking like they did on the Jetsons. So who, who knows? Hold on. I wouldn't want to drive a flying car. I mean, in New York City, driving is is a nightmare, and a, a flying car would be like <laughs> even worse. I feel like it, a true, true nightmare. Um, but even so, you mentioned some of those big tech names, and I feel like the notes that I've been reading from the banks and from just research reports in general, they're sort of mixed on them. Where, as you said, the sh the shine has come off uh, off of some of them. We we saw a bunch of them report earnings this week. So how should we be thinking about them? Because I remember writing stories during the pandemic saying exactly what we had just been talking about, where the big tech names were considered defensive place. So how should we be thinking about them today? Well, definitely not as defensive place. <laughs> I think that that probably was a very much a window of time. Um, tech has always been, it's not, you know, we will see a growth in cash flows well into the future. It has always been in the growth segment, and we've seen some staggering performance out of those names, um, up perhaps through 2020 and 2021. And now we've, we're seeing the, the, the dose of realism, as I mentioned before. So we would, shouldn't necessarily see them as, as defensive names, but they will, I believe, be important parts of the portfolio. But we are seeing a, a changing of the guard. We're seeing a shifting. We're seeing the encroachment of regulation. Um, even in the past week, the spat around Twitter and the impact that the, the deal um, that Elon Musk bid for Twitter had on the price of Tesla, we can see that there is a, a lot of drama always in storytelling around many of these tech names. They're, they have become so large that the regulators cannot ignore them. And there will be pressure from around privacy concerns, use of data, and um, anti-competitive concerns as well. So we need to watch these players. They are essential parts of our ecosystem, and they will continue to flex their muscle. They're cash-rich. We will see some of the innovation coming from within them, but regulators are not turning a blind eye. And that may, in fact, put pressure on the business model. And what we're actually seeing is maybe investor expectations around growth, say, of subscribers or of revenues were based on the wrong anchor, an anchor that was set during the pandemic. Um, that was an unusual 
due to an exogenous event. And perhaps we need to just reset some of those expectations. But they will be key and they will dominate the index going forward, but they will not be defensive. If you had mentioned uh, uh, private offices dipping their toe a little bit more into venture capital, um, and I know Moneta has some family office uh, clients, I find that space kind of interesting because there were a few years there where so many hedge funds, uh, whether it be regulatory reasons or, or whatever else, were converting family offices. And we never quite hear very much about what they're up to until something like uh, Archegos hits, uh, you know, uh, uh, in the news again this week for just the spectacular blow up of, of that family office. Um, I, I'm, I'm curious how much contact you have with the family office clients. And is, is there any sort of, you know, temperature check that you could give us from sort of the risk taking and the strategies of that group? I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of a, a lot of different uh, disparity among what they're doing. But um, you know, when the only sort of insight you get into this space is is a, a situation like Archegos, it, it really makes you wonder what sort of the mood is with that cohort of investors. Are they in general a little bit more risk taking than than perhaps, uh, you know, your re- retail clients or your typical hedge fund? Does, does that structure of a family office sort of encourage a little bit more of a, an embrace in risk? It's a really good question. I say each individual family office is as individual as the family members in it. So <laughs> it's very difficult to set, I say, a trend or a kind of um, any norm across family office investors. I would say in general versus, say, institutions, there does tend to be perhaps more risk appetite because of the whether it be an entrepreneur that's behind the family office that has had an appetite and been successful at taking risks in business. We do see more esoteric um, investment strategies come out of family offices. It could be that they're more localized in terms of their investment, tend to invest locally. Um, They may be a desire to invest more in real estate because that's an area that has a lot of familiarity. We might see um, interest in some more off-the-run type of investments such as digital assets. Because again, there is the discretion that they they have to not be forced to be index focused. Um, different family offices, according to the generational situation, may or may not need income. And if they don't need income, then they can very much be focused on the long term and on the absolute return of the portfolio. If there is a need to, to take income, um, then we, we look at areas such as private credit that are throwing off an income. And real estate is great for that as well, because there's an inflation linkage built into real estate. And it throws off a reliable income, and it tends to be less focused, less mark to market or less um, you know, correlated with public markets. So, so all of those factors factor in. Uh, certainly, we get some of our most interesting inquiries um, on the family office side, as there is a, just a, a really broad-based, extremely stimulating group um, of clients that that are, are really open to ideas. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I, but I wonder, do, do you think that trend could you know sort of pick up again of hedge funds converting? And I'm thinking mainly because of all the, you know, there's been so much scrutiny from the sort of Reddit uh, traders of the world towards hedge funds. And, and there's been, um, you know, new disclosure rules coming up on, on short positions. It, it, could that drive a, a further move into family offices, do you think? Yeah, potentially. I mean, there's certainly been a nice run. I wouldn't say we've seen the kind of the legendary runs that we saw in back in uh, in you know, the early 2000s in terms of hedge fund fortunes being made. Because equity markets themselves have been so strong, hedge funds have actually been um, laggards and they've struggled to find their place in portfolios. They've struggled to, to eke to earn their place and really earn their keep. We've seen hedge funds really only earn their keep when they're compared to fixed income returns recently, which would be quite a muted rate of return. They certainly haven't held their own relative to equity markets. 
That said, in a month like we're seeing right now, the word on the street is that many hedge funds were short going into some of this correction. So they're actually maintaining their, um, their, their, their absolute return year to date quite nicely that they're not actually falling along with equity markets. So, but that said, as far as structurally, do we see them close? There have been some black eyes in hedge fund land recently. There have equally been some extraordinary gains. And certainly those household names or as certainly well-known names in hedge fund land, if they are, are well-known, it's because they've been in the business for decades and they have probably survived some pretty tumultuous markets. So that is staying power that perhaps is survivorship bias, but those hedge funds are, are here for the long haul. They tend to have a sticky client base. They have perhaps a liquidity structure that allows them to, to invest more long-term. They're not used as the ATM. There've been a lot of lessons learned through the liquidity crisis of 08 in terms of how to set terms of exit and uh, the type of capital they want to attract. There's been a real focus on diversifying capital bases. So that means that they don't see the kind of outflows that they might've seen during um, maybe as one consultant went sour on a hedge fund, for example. So it will continue to happen. There will be fortunes made that will they now will want to consolidate and um, and not run um, with the strict scrutiny. But if anything, I see more regulatory risk on the private market side because that's perhaps a side that has not had the same level of scrutiny, whereas hedge funds have, have run with that level of scrutiny now for, for many years. You mentioned digital assets, and that's actually something I hear quite frequently in reporting on uh, cryptocurrencies that family offices really sort of um, are interested, if not dabbling in, in the space. So I'm wondering what you make of the cryptocurrency space, because, you know, just looking at its at, at Bitcoin's daily moves, for instance, on some days, it's actually less volatile than what we see in tech, for instance. So what do you make of what's been going on there? It's really interesting. Our position at Moneta on digital assets is that we provide education. We don't provide recommendations from a compliance standpoint. But we need to educate ourselves and our clients um, have come to us with questions and it is a fast moving dynamic area. So we are embracing that um, wholeheartedly in terms of our mission to get on that learning curve. So as far as how do you characterize if with any new asset we like to see, how do we characterize this? Where do we plot it on the risk return spectrum? So how can we think about it in terms of how it's likely to behave in um, any market environment? And ultimately, with digital assets, it has been a process of discovery because is it a substitute for gold? Is it a, a risk, a, a safety asset? Is it a substitute for uh, for cash? Or is it ultimately the highest risk reward asset you could put in a portfolio that should be right out there with emerging market equities and venture capital? And certainly up to now, given the volatility we've seen and the way that um, some of that, say, Bitcoin has moved, and I put this maybe even prior to the current fallout in tech stocks, because um, there have been a couple of, as I said, dramas that have led to some isolated tech stock falls. But as far as what the way Bitcoin was looking to us in terms and digital assets in general, in terms of our process of discovery, was that it was seen as being quite highly correlated to risk assets, not to be something you would use in a portfolio as insurance or a hedge. It would be very much something that would be there almost like the kind of the play money, the kind of the, the gambling segments that you would, you would look, use yeah. and not know how it's likely to behave. It certainly wasn't an inflation hedge. It certainly wasn't likely to be a hedge in a case of a flight to safety. That said, I think there has been perhaps an oversimplification of um, digital assets and looking at, say, Bitcoin as a proxy for all of them. But if we break apart NFTs and look at how, say, ultimately some NFTs could behave in a portfolio, they could have their own stream of cash, a royalty stream that would attach to them. 
And that would look then like simply any other asset that has a contractual cash flow. So we've seen pharmaceutical royalties, film royalties, music royalties, all sit alongside private credit as being nice sources of cash that are not necessarily related to equity market movements. We've seen in the past collectibles like art be thrown into a portfolio and expected to be kind of an alternative alternative or alternative squared that used to be called back, I think, in the early 2000s um, because it, it was a diversifier, but wasn't really known how that would behave. So digital assets are probably in that category, but we are definitely, as I said, that the name of the game is discovery right now. Yeah. I think that's a, a, an important distinction to make about NFTs that not a lot of the sort of outsiders of the space don't really appreciate that sort of income producing, yield generating um, uh, potential. You know, they're not all just pictures of cartoon apes uh, smoking cigarettes and, and, and stuff like that. your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it, or you think you do. The people in the spotlight, athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month, like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. 
the lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. If you one more thing before we get to our crazy things, I wanted to, um, I know you've given some thought to the notion of the end of globalization or the deterioration of, of globalization. We've talked a lot about it on the podcast. How do you see that playing out um, and, and what effects on the market uh, do you think it will have? Some of the shocking news this week, obviously, was uh, Russia turning off the, the gas supplies to Poland and, and Bulgaria, I believe. Uh, the EU pushing back uh, and saying, no, we, we do not want anyone paying for, for Russian energy and rubles. Um, it seems every day we're, you know, the sort of old new world order of globalization is, is breaking apart before our eyes. I mean, is that too pessimistic, do you think? Or, or is that the right way to, to read it at this point? And, and, you know, and again, to reiterate, what, how does that all play out in the markets, do you think? It's a really interesting question. I think we are guilty of some oversimplification when we suggest that Russia invading Ukraine which is the latest of its, uh, you know, certainly its land grab elsewhere, is, is the end of globalization. Certainly, it underscores the dangers of interdependencies. But what we saw, and I think it was somewhat almost irresponsible to suggest that this is the end of globalization, because that same week, what had in fact happened was that President Biden had gone to Europe and committed to providing natural gas, liquid natural gas to Europe from the US. I don't see how that signals the end of globalization. That to me is just a reorganization of relationships and, um, and ultimately a re- just a resetting of some of this, uh, some of these, these arrangements. So yes, we certainly have seen a wave of protectionism that has been a global phenomenon for some time um, with the supply chain constraints that we saw during COVID. We saw the benefit of supplying locally and having a less complex supply chain. But that said, many of these bottlenecks have been eased now. And uh, ultimately, especially if there is pricing pressure and, um, and we're seeing that companies are seeing margin, margins shrinkage, they are going to continue to try to outsource. They will not be onshoring. Um, facilities if they can still ensure that their margin is protected but through offshoring. You do make a very dif- dif- uh, interesting and imp- important point, though, which is around the, the moral implications of some of the globalization that we've seen. The very swift multilateral adoption of sanctions against Russia saw that there was um, certainly a concept of what, when does something become uninvestable? When does a risk become intolerable? When are we prepared to divest entirely? from a country's stocks because we, we cannot tolerate um, what's going on on the geopolitical stage. If we take that kind of a lens, the ESG lens to, uh, and I think of things say employee rights or corporate governance or rule of law um, or treatment of minorities, um, if we ethnic minorities, if we do take that lens to all of our emerging market investments, we might find that many of our emerging markets become uninvestable as a result. So not only does this have implications for how a company um, sets up its supply chain. It'll have implications for how an investor decides to invest. I think that lens will ultimately mean a rising standards everywhere. Just as the movement towards the energy transition, it is quickly realized that there's no point in pursuing this simply among 
um, first world countries, that this is only meaningful and we can only get to the climate change goals that we are seeking if we apply this across the world in a, in a way that is, um, that, that is equitable, that we, we, we need to assist emerging markets to um, get on this climate transition path as well. So I think now that we've seen this, we are looking globally. Everything, it, it only matters if we look globally. And so I don't think we're at the end of globalization. Perhaps it's a different form of globalization, though. That's pretty good. Good answer. <laughs> More hopeful. Uh, or hopeful, yeah. I always like it when people uh, pull me out of my pessimistic doom and gloom mood and 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 have me uh, more hopeful than I started. So uh, uh, thank you for that. But uh, with that said, I think it's time for our crazy things of the week. Uh, Vildana, I heard you say before the podcast, you don't do not have a washing machine in your apartment there in New York. So I wish it's like my greatest wish. So I've got a washing machine themed crazy thing of the week. But first, let's hear yours. I can't wait to hear yours. Really, like, it's my greatest wish to have a washing machine. I think all New York City, uh, um, anybody who lives in New York City can, can commiserate with me. But I'm, I'm, I'm going back to the cryptocurrency space. Uh, there's a lot of crazy stuff this week. But um, something that caught my eye was the Fidelity said they're going to soon allow uh, 401k participants, their 401k participants, to put a portion of their savings into Bitcoin. And employers that decide to offer the option, they'll be able to choose what percentage an employee's account can be directed into crypto, but there's a cap of 20%. So this was huge in, in crypto. Like it was all over Twitter. I, I, I agree. I think that is it, it is pretty, um, pretty amazing. I mean, Fidelity's kind of been uh, getting more and more crypto friendly over, over the years, sure. but you know, sort of a, a real contrast to Vanguard where they're, they're still like, forget it, we're, yeah, we're not sure. going anywhere near it. But uh uh, so it's interesting. Well, it'll be interesting to see if that it may actually help them gather assets that, uh, you know, uh, won't all be in crypto, but will, you know, uh, people who want that exposure. Uh, interesting thing to watch. How about you, Ifia? You see anything crazy this week? Well, I'd say more this the last, these past few weeks. Uh, what I've been, you know, we've certainly now stopped speaking about this inverted yield curve as a harbinger of, re of recession. <laughs> I was kind of quite tired of that. Um, you've been said almost like a voodoo that this that this has happened. It happened <laughs> intraday, and all of a sudden markets were jumping on the recession bandwagon. <laughs> Clearly, there were so many other reasons for that yield curve to behave as it did. Question whether we're even looking at the correct yield curve. They were looking at the two-year tenure, when in fact maybe a three-year tenure or even a different um, set of set of comparisons would have been more appropriate. And the idea that um, this can be a harbinger of recession anywhere from six to thirty-six months out. I just think as an indicator, this is essentially meaningless. So a lot of newsprint was wasted on that particular topic, which I just find is um, really missing, again, an oversimplification and missing yeah. a lot of nuance. And, and it was steepening again before the uh, ink was even dried on, on uh, any of those takes. Yeah, I, I, I get what you're saying. To me, the bigger harbinger of recession was $130 oil. You know, I don't, I don't see how the, the global economy could have withstood that. So to see that come off the boil too, I think is, uh, is good, um, for, for the economic outlook. Um, all right, well, that I'll get, get to the washing machines. I, I will say, I find it's humorous that you hipsters in the city all crave a while, you know, all you people who make fun of us, suburban dwelling, uh, boring family people. I've got a washing machine, Vildana. You, you probably you, have a dryer too. I've got a dryer. I've got a dishwasher. <laughs> Come to the suburbs. We've I got have it all. A dishwasher. We've I've got it all. One of those. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
So this came from, uh, I believe it was the earnings call uh, for the Dutch company ASML. They're a big company that makes uh, manufacturing equipment for the semiconductor uh, industry. And the CEO relayed an anecdote on the call. He said uh, he was talking to the, another CEO of a, only the way he described it was a, a big industrial conglomerate. He, he wouldn't say who the person was or what company, but he said this person told him that the company has resorted to buying washing machines and tearing out the semiconductors inside of them to use in the manufacturing of their own devices. Again, we don't know what devices they're manufacturing. There's a lot of skepticism on Twitter about, about whether or not this guy is sort of spinning a yarn here with this story. Um, but it goes to show like how, how bad that semiconductor crunch is. Um, if, if people are even floating the anecdote of, of someone going and, and uh, buying up washing machines to rip out the semiconductors. For one thing, who knew washing machines even had computer chip, chips in them. I guess every every appliance these days does. Probably probably my air fryer and toaster oven have uh have yeah. chips in them. They all sing those the song at, at the end when 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 it's finished. You know what <laughs> they, I'm talking about? Like my <laughs> no. my dish my dishwasher sings oh, like right, a little right. tune. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> they and must it drives, have a chip. It drives you nuts if you leave leave the door on it open the, the, that sort of thing. Yeah, exactly. But I know you're wondering, how could I turn this crazy thing into a Price is Right competition? I and I, I found the way. I found the way. A great little factoid in that story uh, is that Susquehanna Financial Group, you know, you're very familiar with them, big options house, but, you know, obviously other uh, business lines as well. They actually maintain a data series that tracks the wait time for semiconductor deliveries. So. The time it takes between when you order a semiconductor and, and, and when you actually receive it. So the Price is Right competition this week is, uh, Vildana, what do you think the current wait time for semiconductors is? I will say it's at a record high, obviously, and it keeps getting higher and higher. But what do you think it is, the, the, according to Susquehanna and, and their methodology for doing this? Uh, you know, Again, I'm sure it, it depends on what you're buying and, and how big of a buyer you are. But the way they index this. What do you think the average wait time is for a computer chip? Can I go with 26 weeks? Oh, you read the story, didn't you? No, I didn't. No, I didn't. I promise. Oh, I shoot. I, I, did you I give just, it away? I just gave you it away. You just gave it away. I did not read the well, story. Well, I will tell you this. It's not exactly 26 weeks. So, Ify, you can go over or under on 26 weeks. I was going to go with nine months. I guess like a human gestation period, 40 weeks. <laughs> a human gestation <laughs> and now it's 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 it takes as long to get a computer chip as it does to have a baby 26.6 weeks i can't wow. believe you nailed that valdana and i can't believe i gave i gave, gave up my poker face by, by yeah, i can't uh, believe it. you gave up so easily i listened to a lot of podcasts about the suppl supply chain so it was a good guess but that was pretty good i can't believe how easily you gave up 26 and a half weeks, exactly half year, two fiscal quarters. I don't know if that's coincidence or not, but uh, pretty, pretty interesting. Anyway, wow, I'm impressed, Veldana. For you. once, you, for for once, once. you've impressed me. Yes, the, the, yes. The, I think this is the first time I've ever I, actually guessed correctly. I will not be, uh, even though you want to replace me with Romaine, I will not be planning oh, yeah, a replacement for welcome. you. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> well, with that said, I think that is all our time for the week. If you so great to get your insights, uh, I really appreciate your time and I hope we can get you back again sometime. Thank you. I really enjoyed it too. Thanks for joining us. 
What Goes Up will be back next week. Until then, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal website and app or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love it if you took the time to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts so more listeners can find us. And you can find us on Twitter. Follow me at Reganonymous. Vildana Hyrick is at Vildana Hyrick. You can also follow Bloomberg Podcasts at Podcasts. What Goes Up is produced by Stacey Wong. The head of Bloomberg Podcast is Francesca Levy. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month, like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month, like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.